Welcome to the Trauma Resonance Resilience Podcast and I'm your host Lisa Cherry and I am so pleased today to introduce you to two fabulous women who are going to be talking about something that you might not be very familiar with which is around um, digital archives, the care experience and culture. I'm with Dee Michelle who is a senior lecturer in sociology, criminology and gender studies She was made ward of the South Australian state in 1960 and remained in foster care for 15 years. She worked as an administrator for a multinational corporation before going to university in her 40s. It's never too old when she combined study with primary care for her three children and Rosie Canning, PhD candidate in the Uni of Southampton. The focus of her research is around the representations of orphans and care leavers in fiction. She is examining the research through the lens of both creative and critical practice. Good morning, Dee and Rosie. Good morning. Good morning, Lisa and Rosie. And good evening, Dee. (laughs) Yes, hi. Yes, because of course, at the time of recording, we're in the morning in the UK and Dee joins us from Adelaide, where it's Slowing down, ready for bedtime, I suspect, Dean. Well, I'm certainly slowing down, ready for bedtime anyway. (laughs) (laughs) So tell me, I mean, I guess the first thing that would be really good to know is because you're doing this project together. So how did you meet? I think we met online, didn't we, Rosie? I've been trying to, to recollect when we actually met, but I think it was online. I can't remember the context, but I do remember our first meeting in person and my partner and I were in London and we'd arranged with Rosie to meet her at the Foundling Museum. So we had in common Lemsisse's work. I'd missed him in Adelaide by two days in 2011, but I knew about his work and I knew that it was on at the Foundling Museum. And so I met Rosie there and that was our first meeting. And we went and saw Lemsisse's exhibition inside and I've still got the tote bag that I that I bought at that exhibition, which was which was fantastic. And then we followed up that meeting with the Care Experience Conference in Liverpool. So we we went on, Tony and I went on to that and Rosie was one of the organizers. Brilliant. Um, so a digital archive. So I guess the first thing as well is to say what actually does that look like? I mean, it's very, very um, contemporary to be thinking about having an archive that's digital. Um, how are you going to make that work? How are you going to put that together? And why would we need a digital archive? Well, I'll, I'll answer the first bit, Lisa. Um, so how what's that going to look like? Um, it, well, we're going to be designing um, a website that will also be an archive And uh, what we mean by an archive is just it's somewhere to store um, all the information that we're going to be collating and gathering um, in the coming month. Um, So um, it will look like a website um, to to answer your question and it will be very easy to use and um, we'll have, you know, A to Z of authors um, we'll um, divide it into subject area. So, for example, um, fiction, care experienced representations in fiction, non-fiction, um, 
there'll be spoken word. So we'll have stage, TV, film. Um, we'll also have behind the scenes, i.e. people that actually work behind the scenes making films and television programmes. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, we will have non-fiction. So you will be in there, Lisa, with your brightness of stars. Um, <clears throat> and uh, I'm sure there's other things as well that, not, that are not coming to mind. Um, and, and Dee and I have actually been uh, just talking in the last couple of days. Um, sometimes uh, people feel excluded um, and we don't want it to be just about the famous care lever um, or care experience person. So we are thinking of how we can also include, uh, you know, the ordinary person that was in care. And uh, we're not sure how we're going to do that yet, but that is, um, you know, we are discussing that. I think that's so important. And what we see time and time again is that that feeling of exclusion in any shape or form is so triggering when you have that care experience. And if that shows up in any way, um, and I've seen it happen a lot. Um, so I'm thinking, so two examples I'm thinking of was a piece on, you know, when when we try and alter the narrative of the D Department of Education statistics, which are pretty bleak and very blunt, when we try and alter that narrative, then um, by presenting people who have, you know, done well or whatever that looks like, then that can feel very excluding for people. So I'm, I'm really pleased that you're having those kind of conversations and thinking about how do you do that? You know, how do you, how do you bring together uh, all, all voices? And I guess that's the challenge of the care review as well, which is going on at the moment, which also has triggered people to have that sense of um, being excluded. So what 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 are your thoughts around that, Dean? Well, my thought one of the things that Rosie and I have in common is this idea that often there is only one story told about people who've had a care experience. In Australia, that word is not used for that term is not used very much. Care experience that might be care leavers or pe people who've been in state care. Uh, but there's usually just one story told, and it's a story that feeds into old, ancient stereotypes, actually, really old stereotypes and stigma. So one of the things that we wanted to do was acknowledge sometimes very poor outcomes, but also consider a range of people, and some people incredibly successful. But, you know, in my mind, if you've had a care experience and you break that, um, break that pattern in your family and hold on to your kids, that, well, that's just fantastic. You know, that's a success story in my mind anyway. So we're very sensitive to including uh, people who may, who may never have been heard of. We do have a category where we've got uh, memoirs and autobiographies too. And in there, there'll be people who won't be well known. They will have published their story, perhaps self-published it, um, but they won't be particularly well-known figures. Um, but I think they are fantastic examples of what people are able to do. And I have in mind one woman called um, uh, Julianne Evans, I think her name is, who's very recently self-published her book. She does not have a big story to tell. She's got an awful story to tell in terms of her childhood background, been in kinship care, passed around the care system, sexually abused by a grandfather, 
um, so many moves that in many ways the story is quite confusing. But she sees herself as a survivor. She doesn't have some, she doesn't have a public life in any way, shape, or form. She self-published her book. And I think look, that's fantastic. And I think she's a great role model for other people as well. Because there's such a heritage, I think, with care experience in writing, in poetry, in stories, in and there's something about this um this idea of a digital archive that really is very connecting in that way and and and, you know when I think about when I wrote my story it was not for anybody else you know I I literally had no you know I've got a strategy here you know or (laughs) or anything like that it was it was that deep need to articulate something onto the page almost like getting it out of my body. That's what it felt like. And so I think there's something really beautiful about the the different ways that we do that and, and that you're seeking to pull all of that together. And how does that connect us then? I mean, globally this morning, but there's something very connecting about that, Rosie, isn't there? Well, we're looking at this as an international archive. So you know, as we, as people get to know about it, we're hoping that it will, you know, it will literally go around the world. And, um, you know, it will be, uh, um, it won't just be for care experienced people, but it will also be for, um, you know, people that are in education, perhaps teachers are thinking about alternative families, and they, they could use the archive um, in that way. And, um just thinking a bit more about um, what Dee was just saying about, you know, um, the author that's just self-published. Um, I mean, another way that we're uh, uh, being inclusive and wanting to have some sort of central point for people so that they can find out more, we are going to be including blogs and websites. So, you know, you might just have uh, your own blog where you talk about your experiences in care or um you know what you're doing now or whatever and those those will also be included um so i think yeah this is going to be a really wonderful a wonderful point for people to meet and um to to join in as well like i said you know we are thinking of um some innovative ways of including anyone who wants to be included basically and that has care experience and you know by that we mean um foster care residential um kinship adoption um yeah that you know that that's our sort of I don't know if I've left anyone out there D. The the only thing I'd add, Rosie, is that we think about the formal system, the states, um, the statutory system, but we also think about informal people, you know, who've been in care where it's been organised by family and the state's never never known about it. So we we try to be inclusive in that way too. So, yeah, it's going to be a learning curve for us, isn't it, in terms of um, how does care work in other countries? And, um, yeah. so that, that there's a lot to think about there. Yeah, and I mean, luckily, uh, we're both, all three of us actually are in the Intrac group, which is the international base of all sorts of research around care experience, which 
there's always stuff coming out that I hadn't thought about. I didn't know from a different country about the way they do things or they don't do things. But that what's really sort of striking, I think, is the richness of opportunity, because I think perhaps people listening who may not know a lot about care experience wouldn't necessarily understand that the, that that group, that community, that you know, that the the people who've been through that system for a very long time had no connection or voice um, to anything or anyone else. I mean, again, if I think about my own younger years and my own experience, so I was in care in the 80s, I think you in the 70s, D, I don't want to say. (laughs) 60s and 70s. 60s, so we've got three really quite intense decades there and I think what what really struck me about that period and the contrast with now having social media and connection in the way that we do was I didn't really know anybody else who had that experience outside of being in that experience and the problem with that is that that leaves you feeling very dislocated very isolated very alone very almost shameful there's this real shame to exclusion, isn't there? Which is why it tr- is so easily triggered, I think, in that experience. And so this has a real opportunity to not be part of that and be part of something deeply connecting, something embodied in wisdom. Yeah, I've been reflecting on that idea of isolation recently for a, and, and around stigma and shame, um, Lisa, for a paper that I was thinking about. And I was thinking about how for as a foster kid that was compounded because I wasn't in an institution, I wasn't in a home where I knew any other kids except for me and my sister. So as far as I knew, it was only my sister and I who were in care. So we had no connection with anybody else. And there wasn't organisations like Who Cares Scotland or Create in Australia, which have been around now for 20 years and which connect up people, you know, young people, uh, children and young people in the system. So we didn't know anybody. I have to say, though, there was a difference between when I was a kid. I used to talk about being in foster care. I I remember talking about it with whoever would listen, actually. and And a netball coach of mine was a cop. And he actually gave me mug shots of my parents, my birth parents, who'd been imprisoned for the neglect of their children. And Lisa and Rosie, that was the first time I'd seen them. And I had no idea until that point, and I would have been 17 years of age, that I looked like my father. No idea whatsoever. So, But something changed once I moved into the middle class. And then it became shameful to talk about being foster care. And somehow, for you know, little messages that you pick up, I shut up about it. And it was quite some time. It was probably another 10 years or so before I started thinking about it and talking about it. So for me, it wasn't the working class background that was the issue. That didn't shame me in any way, shape or form. But the middle class certainly did. That is so interesting. And what a horrific abuse of power that person uh, exercised in that moment with you that moment where you met your parents for the first time no not an abuse of power at all I asked him for those photos he volunteered he gave them to me it was it he did something probably wrong from his professional point of view but I was deeply grateful 
Oh, I I at last looked like somebody. <laughs> you know, I thought someone had come to you and said, "Look, these." No. Are you. Oh, okay. Oh, well, that's. I would have been blabbing away my story to him, and he was a cop and looked it up as I would have been in his position, and he, yeah, he he gave me the and a brother as well. So suddenly, I had these other family members, um, and I was deeply grateful to him for that. Oh. Well, that's that's yeah, that's really lovely. But that's also really interesting what you're saying about classism uh, in the context of talking about care and really highlights, you know, which children, generally speaking, end up in that system. Um, mm-hmm. If you're more likely to find, you know, you're, what you're describing is something that I think felt resonant, you know, going into professional practice for example, in my 20s and at uni. I mean, I just didn't talk about it. I just, I never told, I just didn't tell people or I would tell someone and then stare at their face for half an hour to see what happened in their face. And if their face didn't kind of look completely shocked, then I might talk a bit more, but there was always a limit. There was a point where their face would start crumpling up, you know. (laughs) Mm. I think that's so interesting um, to even think about that and, and the impact of that. And in oh sorry, in Australia, the pattern here was to take um, kids and put them into working class. Certainly, it is probably changed now, but it was to put them into working class families. So it was kind of taking the disreputable, taking the kids of the disreputable, putting them into respectable working class families, so they could be trained up and become respectable themselves. Unlike adoption which, of course, has a different history, which is all very much, was always very much about very middle-class families, wasn't it? Middle-class families with nice houses and incomes and married. Yeah. Yes, and I can tell you a story or two about those families. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, sorry, uh, Rosie, you were going to say something. Oh, um, it's gone. It's just flown out the window. <laughs> oh, I think it might have been um, after Lisa was talking about telling people. Yes, I remember that as well. Telling people uh, about your background. Um, you've spent your whole life or however old you are at the time. I don't know. Let's just say 14 or whatever. And you have spent your whole life being excluded from your family, because in my uh, particular instance, um, you know, my mother had me in '58, which was when the uh, the shame of the of the pregnant mother was at you know um, was uh, uh, everywhere, and um, <clears throat> so you carried that family's shame somehow or other. I don't know how they managed to do it, but they went, "You are the bad one." You know, you take all our shame and and, and go around the world, and we're just going to carry on with our lives. And uh, so you always, I, I grew up always thinking, oh, there's something wrong with me. <laughs> I never knew what it was. <clears throat> and um, and then you tell people, oh, you know, I'm, I'm in care. <laughs> I'm in a children's home. And uh, it, it, in, my, in my mind, it was like from that moment, that relationship changed. Um, I don't know why that was. It was in my own mind, though, I think. It wasn't necessarily... Uh, you know, the way that perhaps somebody treated me or looked at me. Um, I know what you mean about being looked at, Lisa. Um, and like you, Dee, I found the working, my, my, most of my friends were working class friends. 
And um, I always found a real welcome uh, with uh, the working class families and an acceptance. Um, and uh, yeah, in fact, that, that was my experience. And, and it was the middle classes that would come out with things like, well, you're lucky you're not a prostitute. You know, those sorts of things stick in your mind. And when you think that you are coping every single day of your very young life with this, these attitudes, not even necessarily spoken, you know, we're humans with all these really um, uh, amazing um, senses and we know and we pick things up and we know what's going on, you know, around us. We're, we're really not very stupid. We're almost psychic, aren't we? And, um, you know, we're, we're holding all this stuff and, uh, you know, no wonder it's so difficult to um, have relationships and look after yourself and, you know, basically cope on your own a lot of the time. Um, anyway. It's a defining experience, isn't it? And I, and I remember saying to somebody, I said, you know, it felt like such a defining experience. And they went, I know, because you talk about it all the time. And I thought, well, you talk about your family all the time. That's <laughs> <laughs> like, what a strange thing to say, you know. Yes, I do talk about it because it's such an... Im- God, I mean, it, it shaped me, inspired me, moved me, shook me, expelled me, brought me in. It, it, it's so such a defining part of my life. Why, why would it not be as valuable as a, a childhood that is as defining, you know? It's really interesting you say that, Lisa, because remembering that I didn't, I stopped talking about being in foster care. And then I, uh, when I got married, I encountered a family that always talked about their childhood. They went on and on and on. I'm thinking you lot are obsessed. (laughs) It was such a weird experience. And I guess it's then I've realized that most people do. It is, as you say, such an important experience that people do talk a lot about their backgrounds. And why shouldn't we? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I guess that's part of what this archive really opens up that space in a very real and rich and connecting way you know for us to have those conversations and discussion interestingly I was on um got caught up in a conversation on Twitter um and found that a few care experienced adults that I'm connected to some really connected to a lot some not so much our paths had crossed at different points in those earlier years and also I was listening to um I was chatting with um uh Sean someone called Sean on um on Twitter and he was talking about his work with NAPIC National Association of Young People in Care and then I pulled out a book a who cares book from the National Children's Bureau from 1977 and you know he was uh, I think a couple of years later being involved in all that and all of a sudden you're having a conversation that is really about heritage and is really about connection. And it's really easy to not understand the context of the last 12 years legislation in the UK is on the back of all that work that was done by people in the 70s and the 80s, all the fighting that was grassroots that came from the people by the people. Um, And it came up in one of the tweets that 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 space has been somehow taken away by very formal mechanisms. 
I, I mean, I'm, I, you know, I haven't unpicked this enough to to figure out where I sit within how I think about this, but. Their, their point was that the charities have taken that away from the kind of grassroots uh, part of um, talking about what we need and how we need it. And in this 1977 book, um, there were a list of things, demands from young people that we must have, we need. And some of those things have not been met yet. You know, so those connections are just, for anyone listening that's much younger who's care experienced and feels really passionate you know just do it just do it and remember that you you know we stand on great shoulders you know there is a long line and history uh, before us all that got us to this point where three of us are all uh, university educated two doing a phd one has done a phd uh, sitting here um, having a conversation on Zoom about a, a digital archive. Yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah, it's fantastic. And we're hoping that we can generate conversation, not just about that sort of historical work, which I think is immensely important um, to see the work that's already been done by so many over time. And also to see there, there's an Australian writer called Kylie Tennant who was writing what I call a protest novel about the New South Wales care system back in the 1960s. And I looked at every single book review and nobody mentioned how bad the care system was. It was like they didn't even notice what she was saying. So we've gone from that in Australia where people just didn't even get what she was talking about to lots of protests now and, and many inquiries. But we're also hoping to talk about how people in care have been represented and are represented. So uh, Rosie and I have had a number of conversations about, you know, serial killers on television shows who have some sort of care experience. And we wonder whether the person knows anything or whether they're just being lazy and using a stereotype. And yet there are other people who are quite good characters. There's a, a, a US detective show called Bosch. And the Bosch, who's a detective, was in foster care himself. And he has a sense of social justice. He's determined to go after people who have been doing the wrong thing. And I think he's a really quite positive representation. So we don't have to rely on lazy stereotypes all, all the time. So that diversity of representation, it's an opportunity for us all to talk about that sort of thing as well. Brilliant. Any final words, Rosie? Uh, get involved, <laughs> get connected, um, contact us um, on Twitter or Facebook um, and uh, or email us and, um, you know, the details. Do you put the details up on your um, YouTube thing? I will make sure that people know exactly how to find you um, and connect with you. Brilliant. Listen, thank you both for this deep, rich, wonderful conversation. And um, I wish you so much um, wonderfulness in pulling this together because oh, it's a fantastic Sorry, point. I do just have to mention one thing, and that is that the Welland Trust um, are supporting us financially to get this off the ground. So our thanks to them. Brilliant. Dee. And thanks for having us, Elisa. That's fantastic. Yeah, thank you. Great stuff. Dee, Rosie, thank you so much. Uh, and uh, all the best. Lots of love. Okay. Bye. Thank you. See you later. Bye. Bye.